Welcome to the Books and Travel podcast. I'm Jo Francis-Penn, thriller and dark fantasy author, bringing you escape and inspiration about unusual and fascinating places, as well as the deeper side of books and travel. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page, and if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my ebooks for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Hello, travellers. I'm Jo Francis Penn, and in today's interview, I'm talking to thriller author L.H. Draken about her experience living in Beijing, China. So we discuss some of the historical places to visit, but also the cultural and worldview differences that make China such a challenging place, I guess, for Westerners and really interesting as well. So China's obviously changing incredibly fast. Um, There's disparity in the areas, of course, but even more so since the government invested in the AI revolution, artificial intelligence and the Belt and Road Initiative. So Lawrence does recommend some books as part of our discussion, which focus more, I guess, in the crime thriller, but also the history and the psychology of China. But I'd like to add a couple more books to your reading list. This is books and travel, after all, um, that... uh, certainly is shaping my view of China. Now, I haven't actually been to China yet. It's one of those places that's so big and so challenging in size that I have left it. Uh, You know, I definitely want to go, but I feel like I need to grasp a lot more of it before I go. I like to appreciate uh, a place before I go so that I can look around and understand things. So I'd like to add uh, to your reading list AI Superpowers, China, Silicon Valley and the New World Order by Kai-Fu Lee, which is really interesting. I actually listened to that on audio. So if you like audiobooks, that is a, a good one. And The New Silk Roads by Peter Frankopan, which I also listened to on audio. So both books address the coming impact of technology and the Belt and Road Initiative, which, you know, over the next 20, 10, 20, 30 years could really change uh, the world order as both these books talk about. Um, so yeah, I love talking to Lawrence. She also has some fascinating points around feeling at home. So she's American, but, um, you know, married a German in Beijing, had a son born in China and another son born in Germany. So she's very much a, uh, I guess, a a traveller. And despite being a foreigner, talks about how she felt so at home in Beijing. And travel also informs her writing and indeed her life. So I hope you enjoy the interview today. L.H. Draken is the author of The Year of the Rabid Dragon, a medical thriller set in Beijing, China. Lawrence is American, but worked as a physicist and engineer in Beijing before moving to Germany. Welcome, Lawrence. Thank you so much, Joanne. It's a real pleasure. Oh, I'm so so happy to have you here. So you have such a fascinating background. So tell us a bit more about how you ended up in Beijing in the first place. Yeah, so... um, my family, I grew up sort of having a little, little bit of a peripatetic lifestyle. My dad was going to school and we went different places for his work and stuff. So I sort of had this bug set in me rather young. But then when I was in university and studying, I got onto a project um, with a collaboration in China, in Beijing. And it was a, it was an electron-positron collider. And we were doing high energy physics and getting that started and stuff with the collaboration. So it was sort of an exciting new thing to be working with a group in China. I, 
before that, I didn't really have much interaction, of course. And then during one summer, I went and started well, for a few weeks worked with them. And that was how I first got there. But then while I was there on the last weekend before I was due to fly home and continue the project, I went hiking on the Great Wall of China um, on this really fantastic, unrestored, natural, wild part. And Mm. I bumped uh, with this with a group of international expats. And I bumped into this handsome young German. And we started talking and we talked the whole day. And after that day, I realized I have to come back to China. (laughs) And I did. And we ended up getting married and we had our first son in Beijing. And so that's how it sort of got started. And then then I started working and writing and yeah. <laughs> wow, that's so, it's so cool. You and your husband <laughs> have such a lovely story there. I mean, me and my husband, we met on the internet. It's just not as romantic as yeah, <laughs> but hiking the Great Wall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a very romantic kind of, yeah. <laughs> it is, it's lovely. Well, so what year, what year did you first go to Beijing and how did it change in the time that you were there? Oh, wow. Um, Well, when I was doing the research, I was there in 2010. And then I moved there January 1st, 2011. So it's a very easy date. I was there for precisely four years and X months. And so um, 2011 until um, mid end of 2015. So almost five years. Mm. No, 16. Yeah. Um, Almost five years. And the thing about Beijing, and this is it's it changes so quickly and it's it's i mean the rate of the amount of the culture changes the technology changes how they do stuff like how they deliver food or how you deal with your landlord or what buildings are available or what restaurants you can eat in or what places you can visit and what places it's just it's just phenomenal the amount of change that happens and so when i wrote the book it was it's set in 2012 and i feel like it's kind of this snapshot of beijing in 2012 but there are some things where you you want to talk about you know what do you recommend in beijing right now well i mean i um, <laughs> the, it just changes so rapidly where I feel like some of the details I can't, you know, I don't know anymore. Like if I went there now, I would have to completely start over and treat it as a brand new city because it's been, I've been in Germany for four years now. It's a completely different city than when I was living there. And with the politics, I mean, with the presidents that change, some of the policies change, some of the availability of, you know, international stuff changes. And so it's just, it's a really, it's really phenomenal. It, what? What's different? Yeah. Mm. So, well, that I guess that's that might be true of a lot of cities, but the pace of change in China does seem to be uh, in, incredibly fast now. But there are some things that stay the same. For example, <laughs> the more ancient sites. So, what are some of the places in Beijing that that wouldn't have changed? Uh, that you know, people who are interested in the historical side uh, should should visit. Yeah, so you, I mean, you definitely have to go to Tiananmen Square, and it's it's a historical site. It's also just a phenomenally like important part, like it's the center of, it's the center of Beijing sort of, I mean, geographically even. So you go to Tiananmen Square and I would recommend you go there and you enter the Forbidden City and you walk through the Forbidden City and then go up the Coal Hill Park behind the city and have like this gorgeous view down over the Forbidden City and the city beyond. And I really hope 
whoever travels there gets there on a clear day because it is possible that the pollution blocks it out. But but the other thing is, if you go there, you really, I really highly recommend that you get a guide or you go to, I mean, there's a couple of places that do a phenomenal historical guides and stuff and tours of the city. So like Beijing Postcards, there's Lars at Beijing Postcards, and he's just a history buff of all things China and Beijing. And they do tours, walking tours through through like the Forbidden City and everything. And you just, the history is so important to understand what you're looking at, what you're dealing with. And unlike some places where you can kind of just show up and walk in and read the placards on the sides of the wall or in front of the buildings, the, the descriptions are not so clear. And sometimes it's not always clear in English and sometimes there's no cultural context. And so you really, I highly recommend you get someone from Beijing Postcards or the Hutong or China Culture Club and get a tour where someone can tell you the history and explain what's going on and some of the culture stuff. Um, that's just phenomenal. And then after you've done like that one d- huge day of major historical sites, take a tour of the Hutongs and which like the Hutong is the traditional um, courtyard house where they used to the, I mean, the old style living quarters, mm. but those change a lot. And so the thing is, um, Beijing Postcards, for instance, has a has a um, a tour of the hutongs, which I cannot recommend enough because it's just phenomenal to to talk about how the city has changed. And he does an amazing job with the history, how the city changes, where you can go to see some of this ancient stuff that's still there. And and where it's how what it means now and some of the details that you won't notice as an outsider as a foreigner, and I mean that's just amazing. Um, but then if you if you have a free day, you really need to go to one of the parks like Ritan Park or Temple of Heaven, and just look at what the people are doing and people old people dancing in the squares to uh, Gangnam style or <laughs> or playing chess or airing out their birds, old men airing out their birds in their cages in the trees. It's just, you just go to a park and walk around and watch what the people are doing. And especially if you're a writer or you're interested in culture or people watching, just look at the people. It's just phenomenal what happens in these different, in these parks. It's just so much fun to just sit there and yeah, I can't recommend that enough. (laughs) It's really, it's really interesting. You mentioned parks because I still remember as a sort of 15 year old going to Germany where you are living now for the first time and going to a park in the summer and there were sort of people who were topless. And I, to a British person, that was, that was quite a shocking thing to do in a park in the middle of Berlin. And so it's interesting what you say about parks. So what are some of the cultural differences particularly as an American going to China, that you really noticed? Um, and sort of any tips for that? <clears throat> I think the thing about visiting China, and this is hard if you're just going for a few days, it's it's something, I mean, I really highly recommend that people live there for a year if you can. And of course, not everyone has the option to do that or can do that. But it's so different. And it's really hard to go there and say, this is better, this is worse. It's really hard not to make the judgment calls about something that's so different because you're like you don't even realize what we assume as a culture until you go to a place like China or the East where it's just 
the assumptions are completely different. And it's really hard to walk into a restaurant and be like, it's just so loud in here. Why is it so loud? Why can't they talk quieter? It's it's just how it, they have a different, they have a different decibel level for speaking. They have a different physical space. They have different topics that they think are public and private. I mean, it's, it's completely normal for like a, a man or a woman to walk up and ask your age or, I mean, they probably won't do that if you're a tourist just passing through. But I mean, I had people ask me how much I made, how much do you pay for your apartment? I mean, questions <laughs> that as a Westerner, you're sort of like, well, that's kind of private. <laughs> but for them, it's a very different, they have a very different mentality. And you need to walk into Beijing or China completely with the mentality this is different. And until I understand it much better, you have to, it's just different. It's just a very different idea. And so whether it's, you know, people spit on the sidewalk or how loud they speak or what their personal space is or how crowded the subway is. You just have to start. It's different. And I'm just observing. And it, I mean, that's almost impossible as a human to do, but it's 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 so important. And understanding the point of view. And the thing about like going to China, you don't understand the point of view change and how that applies to the, the the structure of their life and how they deal with politics and how they deal with history until you've really observed it, I think, in person. And that's what's a trick because you can't underestimate how important China is and how that's going to be in the next few decades. But it's really hard to understand what that means unless you've experienced that to some point. And I, I mean, of course, not everyone can live in China. And I know that not everyone, I mean, if you're a plumber in Michigan, it's really hard to just up and go to Beijing for a year. Mm. But but it's it's something you need to, I think we need to try harder to understand the point of view. Yeah. And I mean, of course, they're like, I don't know. I'm trying to think of more specific things that um, like you shouldn't do. I think people are, are fairly forgiving as long as you are forgiving of them. So, mm. I mean, and the thing about China, which is really interesting, which you don't get when you're traveling through Europe, everybody knows you're a foreigner. I mean, I, I mean, you might be a Chinese American, and so then you don't look like a foreigner. But I found it incredibly like liberating to walk down the street and I look like a foreigner. Everyone knows I don't fit in. No one expects anything from you, and so they give you sort of the space of being, you know, like you're doing something stupid, but it doesn't matter. I mean, like we know you're not local. Whereas in Germany, if I walk down the street, I look like a German. I can, you know, have a basic conversation, and then people expect you to fit in to do things correctly. And in China, there's I felt like there was a larger leeway for foreigners to do, I mean, to, to interact, as long as you were as forgiving of them as you hope they're forgiving of you. Yeah, I think that's a really good tip. And, um, I, you know, it's nice to hear that, you know, people are, are more forgiving. One of the big, um, and I haven't been to China, it's kind of one of those places that feels so big that yeah. I want yeah. to, I don't just want to go to Beijing for a week. As you say, it's almost like, well, give it. And also there seems so many different cities now. So I wanted to particularly ask about the modern side. So you've mentioned some of the ancient things, you know, the Forbidden City, the Great Wall, but yet it's also this startup culture in the same way as Silicon Valley. And I've heard about Beijing's startup area. And then the cities like, I think, is it Shenzhen, which is sort of all futurist and AI and tech. <laughs> so how, how does, and, and mobile payments, that was what I particularly wanted to ask. I mean, that might have changed since you left, but it feels like in many ways, China is much more technologically forward than, than many Western cities. Yeah, and I think... The, the trick about like, for instance, like mobile payments, I don't think 
people pay in cash very much anymore. I think everyone pays for everything with their phone and with their WeChat account. The trick, if you're just traveling through, you have to have a Chinese ID to get a WeChat account and to use that like technology. So it's not like something that you can just walk into for a week as a traveler. So I feel like there's a little bit of a trick, but that, but at the same time, I mean, when you, I have a friend who's still living there, the one of the only friends who's still living there. And she was talking about how the piano teacher for her children recommended that she hire a piano teacher, a virtual piano teacher to observe and supervise the practice time. And it's just the, the amount of things that you can get done online, delivery, you never need to leave your house and you can have this amazing full life of virtual existence where people are bringing you food and bringing you like whatever you could possibly need and you can do everything virtually and there's all kinds of virtual assistants and it's just i i mean i think that was kind of getting off the ground when i left and now i like i said about like visiting restaurants or anything it's completely different and so i have i mean i have no idea how it would be a completely different city if i went there right now to i'd have to learn all of that brand new <laughs> but i mean like that but the thing that i think is also a trick is china's developing on its own like they don't have we're in the west like we may speak different languages in germany or spain or the us but everyone's using facebook everyone's using amazon everyone's using similar platforms and so you can go to any other country i mean in in europe or the west and be like well it's all google maps and it's all amazon and i can use the basic same platforms even for speaking different languages the trick about china is it's developing so fast but they have their own ecosystem it's a completely different e-commerce sites it's completely different um, transportation like Uber kind of sites. It's completely different payment sites. And I think that's sort of the trick is it's moving really fast, but it doesn't interact with the rest of the world at all. And so it's, it's, to me, it's really, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how that, how that works to have 1.4 billion people in their own world bubble. Mm. I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious how that affects, how much that will bring, like how many things that they develop will come into you, into the West when they don't interact at all as it is. And I mean, like for instance, like the Twitter experience on, in China, they don't have Twitter, of course, but their social media stuff, like the language that they use is so specific to the social media. Like it would be hard, even if you speak fluent Chinese, Interacting on social media is a completely different language because of the synonyms and the wordplay that they use. And it's really like, it's so complex. Mm. I, yeah, I don't. Yeah, well, I think it's it's so interesting because also, if, like you're right about traveling in Europe. You know, I travel in Europe a lot, um, right. being in the in the UK. And then, of course, um, my husband's family's in New Zealand. So I go to New Zealand and Australia mm -hmm. and the US. And you're right. It's all, it's not the same, same, but yeah. you can feel pretty happy and comfortable. In, yeah, you know the system. Yeah, you yeah. know the system. And like you say, you can get just roaming on your phone and you can use the maps right. and, and you can use your Starbucks card in all these countries or, or you can use Uber. <laughs> And, and all of this. So it does feel in this way, it feels almost more foreign to me, even though it's yeah. actually more more tech. So I also wanted to ask you, because of course your book is set in the against the backdrop of the biotech industry, yeah. right. um, uh, which is the background. So um, tell us a bit more about that and how that very modern side, um, you know, how do you do that with, with a book set in such an ancient place? <laughs> the reason that I really wanted to write the book in the first place, instead of just writing a blog with a bunch of posts about, you know, cultural differences, it's 
it's so important you understand the mentality of the Chinese and the politics and where they come from historically, especially since Mao and the Cultural Revolution and the history that they have in the last 50, 60 years, and how that affects how they interact with things like biotech and CRISPR and genetic engineering and and the science of, of what's happening right now. And to me, it's really important because as the for take CRISPR, for instance, and genetic engineering, Americans and Europe are really concerned about the the ethic implications of of changing some of these genes and how do you deal with this like morally and what is our role as humans on the on the um, line of of evolution. Whereas the Chinese have a very different idea about that. They have a very different perspective about that. And to me, it's really important because if we don't understand how they're moving, how they're making decisions, we can't interact we can't interact with them. And if the Chinese, for instance, are a culture, and I think people generally think they understand this, but they are a culture based on the group. Whereas the West is mainly a culture based on the rights and the liberties and responsibility of the individual, which means that we have things like human rights and the inalienable freedoms of responsibilities of the individual. Whereas China feels like the group is the most important unity and the individual brings their rights based on their ability to interact and forward the needs of the group. Mm. And so if you take something like CRISPR or genetic engineering and you say, well, you know, this person might, you know, we can take a risk of the individual because what they can offer to the group, even if that individual, you know, has some weird genetic mutation and, you know, not to go all science fiction-y, but if if things went poorly with a CRISPR experiment on a human, well, that's unfortunate for the individual, but it's much more important for the group that we understand how to engineer, you know, cancer-saving drugs. And so they have a different, very different perspective on how to make decisions. And I think it's important that we understand that because that's going to affect dramatically how they do research and how we, you know, do research and how we interact with them. And I think that that's going to be really tricky in the next couple of decades as they run forward on experiments and developments and we're doing it in a very different way. So to mm. me, that's something that we really need to be thinking about and really considering as we make decisions about technology on our, on our side as well. So, yeah, yeah, I think you've you've really hit on it there. And that's, uh, I've watched some of the, you know, Chinese sort of blockbuster movies. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's one, I can't remember what the name was. It had Matt Damon in as kind of the token American. But it, right. it, and it was so interesting watching that movie because it was exactly what you're saying. It's all about the the group, um, you know, how the group together is right. stronger and the individual must sacrifice for, right. the, for the group. And, right. and that kind of um, goes into like a lot of people listening, the main thing they will have heard about China is the kind of lack of privacy, um, right. maybe, um, you know, the the social credit thing, which is right. kind of being talked about at the moment. Exactly. And that if you, you know, I worked for a mining company in Australia, and if we went, if we were going to go, you would have to take a different laptop, because, right. you know, they would just acceptably would ha- hack right. into your stuff or whatever. Absolutely. Um, but as you say, if you look at it from the perspective of the group uh, is more important than the individual then you know why do you need privacy <laughs> when if you're if yeah. you're behaving well in a group well, sense then exactly that's fine, and, right exactly well i think the other thing is if you have a country of 1.4 billion people 
And can you risk anarchy? I mean, can you risk mm. democracy? And of course, like I'm, I'm speaking as a Westerner and I love democracy and I love our system of government, but you have to understand that it's it's a different system. And I'm not going to say whether it's better or worse, but it's it's different systems based on different needs. And if you even if you wanted to go back to Tiananmen Square in 89 and say, you know, this is a demonstration. People want to open up. People want more liberty with their political voice. People want more options and freedom of speech. And when those questions are being asked, you can understand why the leadership of the moment said, things there's there's too large of a risk we have a billion people mm-hmm. and can we risk the the destabilization of making some of these major changes and and so you can understand how even if you want to criticize or make opinions about what should be or what shouldn't be china is operating on a completely different scale than any other country except for i mean india is a similar population but in but the they're dealing with a huge scale, whereas you can't compare that to the US, you can't compare that to Germany or Norway. Or, or the UK or New Zealand. Or the UK. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think, I mean, whether or not you agree with, you know, the history of what happened with Mao or or anything that's come since, you also have to be very pragmatic and say, if you want to make a change, if you want to develop a whole country that that's that is that large, how do you move everyone forward? How do you prevent another revolution? I mean, no one wants even a Westerner. No one wants a revolution in China that's going to destabilize the world. And the way that we interact is so interlinked with China. You want them to be stable. You want them to prosper. You want all of them to prosper. You want all of us to be able to interact harmoniously. And so that word, keeping the public harmony or disrupting the public harmony, which is like kind of a key phrase in China when they criticize, when they, you know, what we would call infringe on personal rights of an individual, you can understand why they're sensitive to opinions that would disrupt harmony of Mm. such a large country. And yes, I mean, yeah, it's yeah. really it's interesting, and I I feel th- this discussion is interesting because I think it's it, it has to be true when you're traveling anywhere that is so yeah. different to your own country. I felt the same in India in many ways. Yeah. In that you you when you travel, you need to be respectful of the place you're going to. So, for example, yes. when I've traveled in the Middle East, um, you know, as a woman on my own, I've worn very modest clothing. I've covered my head. I've worn a wedding ring before I was married. And that is right. not as a judgment. Well, no, it, it's just it's it's a respect for a culture where things are different and thus trying to just um, make life easier. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Um, mm-hmm. So it's that that level of respect is really good. In saying that, um, what like a practical tip I've heard for traveling to China is use a VPN service. Put a VPN service on your phone, and mm-hmm. if you take your laptop, use your laptop so that you can, um, you know, VPN to a, another uh, server like in America, and you can still access things. So w- w- would that be a practical way? Yeah, I think in theory it's a great idea. In practice, um, Xi Jinping and the government, the current government, have really cracked down on VPNs. And so, uh, okay. from I mean, my husband travels back there about once or so a year with for his work still. And he's when he talks to expats there, he says it's almost impossible to use any VPNs anymore. That they've really cracked down on that. They really don't want that. Mm. And so it's really really hard to get to do that. And so I I would say don't expect to be able to access any sort of social media at all. Even if you have a VPN, it probably won't work. I mean, when I was, when I was living there, I'm the, the government changed from Hu Jintao to Xi Jinping in 2013 or 2012. 
the end of 2012. Mm -hmm. And so I was there when things were starting to change. And I mean, even under Hu Jintao, some VPNs would work and then they would stop working and then they would, you'd find another one and then it would stop and you'd find another one. And now it sounds like you can't even do that. So I think you just, you, if you go to China, just accept that you're not going to have access to any sort of social media, maybe not even your mail service, because I, I had a hard time getting Google mail sometimes, mm, Gmail yes, well, Google often. Have just pulled out. Exactly. They? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So just don't expect to have access to any of your normal Anything you do on the internet is probably (laughs) not there anymore. Wikipedia is kind of like come and go. And I mean, a lot of this stuff. So I I honestly don't know that there's a solution right now. And I I don't know how expats live there and being completely isolated from, you know, like FaceTime and Skype and, and these things. But... Mm. Yeah. <laughs> well, really interesting. And if um, I guess, you know, to the listeners, because your experience was was one person's experience. So to the listeners, if, if there's anyone else who has books set in China who are living there, <laughs> let me know, because this is an area I'm really interested in. And, you know, I, I want to travel there, but I don't want to travel there until I am much more aware of things like this type of thing because I live my life on the internet you know I, I I really feel like I want to be sharing stuff so just um just back on sharing stuff like you mentioned mm-hmm. at the beginning the story with your husband and the great hiking the great wall and yeah. I love hiking so I wondered um is there a company you'd recommend for, yes. for that <laughs> yes absolutely you really need to look up Beijing hikers and Hayden um, who runs the company, he organizes hikes all around like northern Beijing. He also does like expeditions around a large different parts of China. So if you're there for a longer period, you can go on the trips with them, which is really amazing because China is one of those places. It's some places you can't just get on a plane and go. Mm. So if you want to go to Tibet, you have to go with a guided tour. You're not allowed to just walk in. Same thing with Xinjiang province in the West. You have to have a permission and you have to have a tour guide all the time. And so if you want to do some of those off the beaten paths places, but then, but then as well, like there's a lot of beautiful off the beaten paths places you cannot get to unless you have someone to show you where it is or how yeah, to get there. Anyway, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and there is not, I mean, there are some signs that have the opinion um, Roman letters, but it's really hard to navigate unless you speak Chinese or understand the locals. And there's not very much English still. Mm. So it's, it's not, it's not a straightforward thing, but, but Beijing hikers does beautiful hikes around the non restored parts of the wall and around Northern and around Northern Beijing into some of the more wild places and some of the local villages, which you just, you just can't possibly get to unless you have some, someone to help you out. So I really can't recommend that highly enough. Oh, um, that's great. And anywhere, anywhere else that you visited while you lived there and you just thought, yeah, this is, this was amazing. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you mean like around China or around Beijing? Yeah, either, either, just, you know, generally. <laughs> <laughs> That's a large question. It is a big question. <laughs> Anything that stands out in your mind. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we, and this is a thing, I'm not sure, honestly, if it's as available for people to go. I thought Xinjiang province in the West is absolutely beautiful and it's a completely different experience. I mean, you go there and this is, this is the area with all the Uyghur people and some of the minorities and stuff, but they look, I mean, some of the, the Uyghur people look Russian. They have blue eyes and brown hair instead of like the traditional Han black hair and black mm. eyes. So, but then also go down to Guilin and the rice patties. And this is just beautiful. Um, you really like the the cool, the really interesting thing about China is so much of it is just along the Eastern coast mm. that 
it's not as spread out as, say, like the United States is, where everything is everywhere and both coasts are packed with stuff and then there's stuff in the middle. China really has mostly everything on the eastern coast. And places like Xi'an, which we would say is in the middle of the country, is considered deep west. And so you can kind of sort of stay on the, the eastern seaboard and then all the way down to Guilin and some of the minority places. I, but again, you can go to places like China Culture Club or Beijing Hikers or a couple of these guided tour places which have which are really good at bringing, you know, bringing you to places that you can't possibly plan by yourself. By yourself, yeah. yeah. I think that's the key. Um, yeah. Right, so apart from your own book, uh, The Year of the Raven Dragon, uh, which is highly recommended, <laughs> can you also recommend, you know, three to five books set in China or even Beijing specifically that people might be interested in reading? Yeah, um, so I... I don't mean to say that I'm the only person doing this because I know I'm not, but there aren't, I did not feel like there are so many books set in current Beijing or current China. Mm. So like fictional books. So like doing the thriller mystery sort of stuff, there is a guy, um, his name is Peter May and he did, he did a couple of thrillers, but they're set in like 1990s Beijing, which is a phenomenally different, phenomenally different time period. It's just shocking. I was reading some of his and it's just shocking what a different city he experienced when he was writing the books. One of the books, though, like a nonfiction side, I cannot recommend highly enough um, The Party by Richard McGregor. And it talks a lot about it's the the concept is along the lines of how does the government work in China? But because the government is such an underlying part of Chinese culture and how society functions, there is a lot of history and understanding what the pe- how the people act and how they think and where they're coming from and why they do the things that they do. And it's just he does so many anecdotes about his experiences and the people he's talked to, as well as like, how does it function as a system? So I can't like that's such an interesting book by Richard McGregor. Um, but then it's also I feel like there's an interesting phenomenon going on right now where people have come out of a time that was really unstable and now they're economically prospering and they have a stability and they're really moving forward financially. But people are starting to ask harder questions like what is the meaning of life and why are we here and what are we doing? Why are we, why are we doing what we're doing? And those questions are starting, I think, to begin a period where people are, are moving outside of the Communist Party and ask and looking at other countries, looking at other nations, looking at other religions, looking at other, you know, means of acting. Mm. And there's a book by Ian Johnson called The Souls of China. And it's a discussion about how these people are answering these questions. And it's it's coming at a more slightly more religious perspective of different kinds of religion, how that's coming back into China. Because with Mao, all religion, all traditional practice, all traditional morality was completely wiped out. And mm. I think they've lost, they've lost all of that. And so as they explore, like, what is the meaning of life? They're starting kind of an interesting new period. So I, I think that's a really interesting book as well. Um, but if you want to do like a, um, a, a true crime sort of story, there's a book called Midnight in Peking. And it's it's based in, I think, 1910. It's before the fall of the emperors, I believe, but before, but before Mao. Um, 
and it's a it's a story about this murder that happened in Beijing, and you follow Paul French's research and the story around the murder and the the culture and the people and the Beijing of that period. So it's really it's really a fun read if you like history or historical crime and stuff. So that's really those are three books that are really fun. Mm. But there's also I mean like Amy Tan, Lisa C, some of these people that are doing more traditional. I mean older or like fictional or just not thrillers or mysteries, but just, you know, really beautiful books about China. There's also always those kinds of writers. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. So I wanted to ask you just a couple of broader questions because, you know, you're American, you're living in Germany, you were in China, um, you've, you know, you're, you're, child is was born in China you've got these different um sort of parts to your life so I wondered what are your thoughts on home and how is like home for you and your husband and your son you know they they could all be different things right so you know what does home mean when you live the way you do yeah uh, (laughs) ah um I it's interesting because like I, I started when we were we first started the interview I mentioned that my my dad had been moving around a little bit for his education and for his work and so growing up I sort of I got uprooted a few times and at a few like really critical moments when you know like when you're 13 that's when you really like set down your roots or you rip them out and you you don't have them anymore and I we did a couple of those moves where it was really like I don't know that I'm going to fit in anywhere anymore and I need to stop trying one of the really amazing things about being in Beijing, particularly about this concept of home, was it was the first place that I felt really at home since since I had left upstate New York back in 98 or something. I, I'm, wow. I'm not sure what year it was, yeah. but it was the first place that I really felt at home. And it was such an amazing, bizarre experience where you cannot... There are, there are a few places where you feel more of an outsider than someplace like China or Beijing. And yet at the same time, you really you realize that it's it was so liberating, liberating in a way to feel I'm an outsider and no one expects anything from me. And I they all know that I'm an outsider and I'm around a lot of other expats that are also outsiders. And we're just all figuring this out together. And we're all have our weird cultures from wherever we've come from. And it was such an amazing community where you where you I felt so relaxed for since more relaxed than I'd felt in a long time. And I think that's something that, you know, the world is getting more flat and people are moving around more. And I speak to more people that have sort of a similar moving around lifestyle. And I think this is becoming more common, but I think we realize we're able to to sort ourselves into a way where we can choose to live someplace or we can choose to be around people that think like us and not, I mean, I don't want to, if, I don't want people to start like, you know, all the, you know, political party of this bent go to this place and all mm. the other ones go there. Like, I don't mean that at all, but I mean, you can choose to live someplace where you understand the people or where you fit in better or where you, where you can be an outsider as a choice. And I think that's really a phenomenal idea. As of, I mean, I have two sons. One was born in Beijing. One was born in Munich, and I have no idea how they're going to feel about home as they, <laughs> as they continue to live on this peripatetic existence with me and my husband. But, but I think, yeah, I think that's going to be something to, that a lot of people are going to be dealing with and, and figuring out as we, as we, as we become more interconnected on the world and move back and forth. And, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. No, I, I agree with you. I I feel 
much more multicultural my family yeah. is very multicultural and you know so I, I love that and then um you know so if if you I guess if you don't know where home is and home <laughs> moves then what does travel mean um and and what so what does travel mean to you and to your writing I this is something that I've really thought spent a lot of time thinking about and I I feel like travel is something that in the last couple of decades maybe maybe even the last two decades only, the, the price of travel has dropped phenomenally. The, the barriers to travel, like the time that you need to get someplace is just almost disappeared. You can be anywhere in the world in a few hours. You can pay with your credit card. You never have to, I mean, a lot of places, you never even have to convert any currency because it's just so credit-based. You, The language is, there's a lingua franca almost everywhere where you can kind of get by with just speaking a few words of English even. And and so the barriers to travel have completely, dis- not completely, but largely disappeared. Whereas it used to be that you had to spend weeks and months and years going on a trip if you wanted to, you know, go from the U.S. to Switzerland. You had to, you had to really fight to interact and understand and solve problems. And you don't have to do that anymore. And this is why I feel like if it's possible at all for somebody, they really need people need to take the time to live for a couple of years someplace else. And obviously, like not everyone has that capacity. There's all kinds of limitations about profession or family and stuff. But if it's possible, I really think you don't understand a place until you've lived there for a couple of years. You don't understand the culture, even even coming to Germany. You 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 don't have to speak German to live in Germany, but if you have to solve the problems of day-to-day life. If you have to figure out how to get, you know, the hardware for your curtains, you have to solve that problem. <laughs> you have to figure out how to register with the government. And it's all these things that it's more, it's the problems you used to have to solve when you were traveling, but now you don't have to because you can kind of just float along and get by and there's a tour guide and there's a credit card and you can get anywhere and there's no risk. There's very little risk. But I really, I think for me, the important thing for my writing is under, is spending the time in a different culture where you can understand it and you can solve problems and speak to people over a period of time where you start to understand what their point of view is. So, mm. yeah. Yeah, I think that's great. And I think for me, because I, I, I lived in uh, New Zealand for seven years, not, you know, again, not that different in Australia <laughs> for five years, but then you actually, you learn what is different to your yeah original culture and you know I moved back to England after 11 years away and I I just don't take things for granted you know whereas I think when you just stay in one country for a long time you take it for granted you think you just start criticizing things that in other countries are a miracle (laughs) you can't you can't even understand like what the what the axioms of your society are unless you go someplace where the axioms are completely different Mm, like you just can't understand what is common knowledge for Americans or Europeans, unless you go someplace where that is not common knowledge and that is not the common axiom of, of, of processing information until you go someplace that's really different. And then you can come back and I can go back to the US and be like, wow, like I understand why people do something a certain way, even though they, they assume that everybody does it that way. And I when I when I talk to people, sometimes I'm saying, you know, sometimes I say, you don't under you you assume that there's a certain common knowledge and it is not common. It is, you know, you have different ways of solving problems. You have different ways of interacting with your boss or your employees. You have different ways of driving a car, which you would assume like most of that's like pretty straightforward and and given and it is not. And you don't Mm -hmm. realize that until you're someplace where 
the axioms are completely different. Yeah. yeah. You're brilliant. So uh, does that mean your next thriller is going to be set in Germany? <laughs> so the, I'm I'm well into over halfway into the sequel, which is actually set in Geneva. So I, I studied um, outside of Geneva for a year. I have a degree in French as well. So I I'm setting the the protagonist of um, the rabbit dragon goes to Geneva and he has solves a couple of problems there. And then he's actually going back to China afterward. So Ah, yeah, more I have a couple of research. big things planned for him. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So where yeah. can people find you and everything you do online? <laughs> yeah, so I am wide. So you can find my books anywhere. You can find most books um, online. Um, but I also have a website, lhdraken.com, where you can do a fun little quiz about all the weird common sense knowledge that you don't realize. So it's kind of a fun quiz on there. Um, yeah, I did that uh, quiz. And my... It was fun. And I got like <laughs> half of it wrong. <laughs> I'm so pleased. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I also have social media. So LH Drake at LH Draken on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. So all of those places. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your yeah. time, Lawrence. That was great. It was so much fun, Joanna. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.